Welcome to Sober Sassy Life. My name is Jackie Elliott and this is part one of the audio for Sober Ever After. Sober Ever After was written by me, Jackie Elliott, in 2016. I'm giving thanks here to my very patient husband, Bob, and the sober blogging community. The cover photography of the book is by Jessica Breeze Photography. This is a non-fiction book. However, some names, places and incidences have been changed or amended to protect the privacy of people who did not expect to turn up in a book. Part 1 is the introduction, Chapter 1, Worrywart, Chapter 2, Am I an Alcoholic? and Chapter 3, Drunken Magical Thinking. You can find the other chapters on Part 2 and Part 3 of this audio package. Introduction I think we are well advised to keep on nodding terms with the people we used to be, whether we find them attractive company or not. Otherwise, they turn up unannounced and surprise us, come hammering on the mine's door at 4am of a bad night, and demand to know who deserted them, who betrayed them, who is going to make amends, wrote Joan Didion. This book took far longer to write than I had intended. In fact, it started off with a different, much catchier title, and I wrote the first draft quickly with humour. I like humour. I think we all do. And even alcohol dependence can be funny, right? When I started editing, however, it all sounded wrong. I sounded angry in the funny parts and far too flippant. So I started again. I didn't want this to be a dead drunk in a ditch on a dark night kind of sober memoir. Not because it wouldn't have been captivating. Everyone enjoys these kinds of salacious details and I probably would sell far more copies. But for this reason. We humans are not so much rational beings, we are more rationalising beings. When I was first flirting with sobriety, I would read sober memoirs while sipping on my wine, reading rock-bottom stories and rationalising to myself, there's no way I'm as bad as that. I did behave badly. I did and said bad things and I hurt people. I was affected physically by my drinking. My bank account was definitely impacted and I really pissed off a lot of people. But my rock bottom is quite mundane compared to how things could have turned out. A few weeks into my sober quest, I was in hospital visiting a friend. In the bed next to her, behind the curtains, I could hear a lady moaning and crying. She's detoxing, I was told. This poor lady, while very drunk, had been mugged and beaten. She had ended up in hospital with several broken bones and was going through her third detox. It's a horrible process. I saw no similarities in our situations at all. I felt huge compassion for this lady, but I could not conceive that we suffered from the same disease. And that's the problem. Alcoholism at the very end of the spectrum is actually a disease. A body that's completely addicted to booze will, at some point, cease to function without it. And then only medical invention intervention will be able to help, if at all. I was not nearly at this stage. And most people who have a nagging feeling at the back of their mind 
I really should cut down on the wine, are not at that stage either. And yet, the stereotypical image of an alcoholic is identical to the lady in the hospital. By that time, I had already committed to quitting. Previously, I had tried for over three years to moderate and had failed. I broke all my self-imposed drinking rules on a regular basis and slid back into my old habits. But if I hadn't already known that a sober life was my best option, witnessing this poor lady would not have convinced me. Only when I started blogging did I find other sober bloggers whose stories resonated with me. High-functioning people who still got the kids to school on time, who still attended board meetings, albeit with hangovers, who still had marriages and houses and jobs. They all had high bottoms, just like me. This book was written to keep on nodding terms with my past self. It doesn't hurt once in a while to remind myself how far I've travelled, and also to make you, the reader, shuffle uncomfortably in your chair occasionally as you recognise yourself a little. If you are finding ways to rationalise your drinking like I did for decades, then this is dedicated to you. I hope this book makes you squirm. With love, from Jackie. Chapter 1. Worry Ward. Cognitive dissonance is the uncomfortable state of being caught between two conflicting desires. It's a psychological term, and when I came across it, I was filled with a sense of relief that there was an actual scientific term for a feeling that I was so accustomed to experiencing, it was practically my default emotion. I knew it as merely being worried. A person with cognitive dissonance will make efforts to reduce the uncomfortable feeling. And there is no better way to temporarily achieve this reduction of cognitive dissonance, I found, than drinking your face off. Which I did for much of my adult life. No one likes to feel uncomfortable. No one enjoys worrying. No one relishes stress, no matter how many business gurus tell you that they thrive on it. I simply don't believe it. And I've always hated it. I've always longed to be one of those people who don't care what other people think, who let debt and drama slide off them. But I am not one of those people. I am someone who worries about wearing the right clothes to social functions, who worries about turning up on time, not embarrassing or humiliating myself in front of others, not laughing too loud at jokes, not breaking any of the rules written or implied. I once spent a whole night fretting and wishing I hadn't agreed to go fishing because I had never stepped on a boat before. And what if it was too far from the dock? And what if I fell? Or I might be wearing the wrong shoes and slip on the deck? Or if the sea was rough, I might get sick? And what about holding a fishing rod? What if I dropped it? What if I lost a fish? Worrying is exhausting. And it was a relief to me that there was a magical liquid that could slowly dissolve away my default level of stress. Settling down with a glass of wine every evening became a ritual that I relied on. Those first sips of wine would seep into my soul. I felt comforted. I felt like I was in a warm, safe bubble where my troubles could not prod and poke at me. The fretful monkey chatter in my brain receded. For a while, I stopped my world and got off. I had nothing tangible to worry about. 
I had the best childhood any person could hope for. I had parents who fervently believed that their purpose in life was to create a better future for their two children and to make the happiest memories possible while they were going about that task. When there was a shortage of money, my brother and I didn't know about it. If my parents were stressed or going through a rough patch, there was no impact on us. Education was a holy grail. Both my parents, post-war babies, proudly came from working-class backgrounds but aspired to be middle-class in white-collar careers, and secondary education was a goal for both of us. Mum and Dad wanted to travel, wanted to own their own house, wanted a new car and a comfortable retirement, and they worked for it. Once a year, we would go on our family summer holiday to Swanage. We stayed in the same guest house every year for Craig and Doran. It was a rambling old building with room for about 20 families. Most of us were escaping the city for the salt air and sandy beaches of the south coast for two weeks of freedom from the rat race. We had the same room every year, all four of us together with a tiny sink in the corner. No ensuite in those days, we had to time our shower in the shared bathroom to coincide with the hot water. And it was bed and breakfast only. I still remember the aroma of fried bread and bacon in the morning, my dad sneaking an extra greasy slice onto his plate. I'm on holiday, love, and winking at us kids. And afterwards, we would walk to the beach, carrying buckets and spades, windbreakers, towels and swimming costumes. We would pause at the only tiny beach shop, and my brother and I would gaze at kites, inflatable boats, cheap trinkets and the ice cream counter. But you've only just had breakfast. And then we would arrive at our beach hut. Musty, salty, wooden huts in rows, rented for weeks at a time. The unspoken rule that the expanse of sand directly in front of the hut was ours. So my dad would firmly stake our claim by hammering in a windbreak and laying out our beach towels. My mum would brew a pot of coffee over a tiny portable camp stove in that hut and prepare lunch. So much better to eat in the hut, we don't get the food all sandy. And every day for two weeks, we would build sandcastles, play football on the beach, swim in the sea, pausing only to get reapplied with sunscreen and our occasional trips to get ice cream cones. If days were rainy, we would huddle in the hut or trudge along the cliff walk to see the old Harry Rocks or visit Corfu Castle. Not for the history lesson, but for the clotted cream teas served in the tiny Yeoldi tea house. I remember all this because my parents worked hard for me to have these memories. These days the Craig and Doran is a nursing home. Swanage is a faded seaside town, and maybe it always was. And as we got older, our family got more adventurous with our travels. But those summers were worry-free for me. During one of my moderation attempts from booze, I took up boxing. I hoped that developing my fitness levels would somehow motivate me to drink less. And my 14-year-old granddaughter was exhibiting all the signs of worry that I recognised. She was worried that she was too tall, too fat, not pretty enough, not popular enough. It stirred up old troublesome feelings inside of me as I watched her struggle with makeup and try too hard to be friends with the mean girls. So we joined a boxing gym and twice a week for two agonising hours 
I was made to run, squat, pound on cement-like bags with large gloves until every tiny cell in my body was shrieking for mercy. While I hoped that this physical punishment would somehow rid my body of booze, like a sweaty exorcism, I also hoped that my granddaughter's confidence would be bolstered, and if nothing else, she could pound her teenage anxiety and worry into a gym bag. I'm not sure if it worked, but she did at least get some amusement from seeing me in physical pain. One Thursday night, she seemed more enthused to go than usual, and the reason was immediately apparent when we arrived at the gym. He was pretty, and he knew it. Short gelled hair, just the right amount of tan and stubble, impossibly white teeth, and as he carefully peeled off his sweatshirt, the type of sculpted muscles that are only achieved by narcissistic pumping in front of a mirror. Sullen teenage girls melted into fawning puppies. He leaned into the gaggle of girls, preening and savouring the moment. Just a brush of his hand on an arm, a knowing tilt of his chin, the mirror's perception of a glance in their direction, and I practically had to run over and catch them as they swooned and dropped like nine pins. Oh, Mr. Bradley, one of them managed to get out a whole sentence without a high-pitched giggle. Will you be coming every week? Mr. Bradley was a school teacher, except when he was out of school, it was Call Me Mark. What a fucker. The cool teacher, who somehow gets his rocks off by encouraging those teenage fantasies, who thinks it isn't just okay to be their friend and dole out hugs and let them cross all boundaries, it's the perk of the job, all this adulation that feeds a pathetic ego. Ego. My, call me Mark, was one of the cool teachers. He would laugh and joke with the boys, occasionally take a drag of their cigarettes behind the horticultural buildings, and once he caused a stir of excitement when he left a copy of Playboy on his desk. I was in love. He was really careful not to actually touch me until I was 16. Up until then, it was just discreet hand-holding, quick hugs and meetings for school for extra tuition. My, call me Mark, like all of the men and sometimes women who abuse their power over children, was a predator who bolstered his own self-esteem by feeding into my teenage confusion and loneliness. It was all over very quickly. The school board fired Call Me Mark and offered counselling to me the victim, except I didn't feel like a victim, I felt like one half of a tragic love story. My parents were devastated. I screamed and cried and pleaded. I recall one evening as my dad poured himself a large whisky took a deep breath and tried to question me as gently as possible while containing his rage, coaxing all the details that no father ever wants to hear. As I told him, crying, I watched as he sipped his whiskey. It seemed to calm him a little. Hours later, when the murmur of anxious and angry voices from my parents' bedroom finally died down, I crept downstairs. I poured myself a glass of whiskey. I sat in the darkness and sipped. I gradually calmed down enough to go back to bed and sleep. Up until then, I barely noticed alcohol. I have a few memories of my parents staggering in from PTA dances, giggling and slamming doors too loudly. But my mum put on the kettle when she came in from work, and she occasionally had a sweet sherry with Sunday dinner. 
At Christmas time, my nan would wink at my brother and me and make us a snowball of foamy advocat and lemonade. Disgusting, but we gagged it down because we were drinking with the grown-ups. Wine made its debut at our dinner table in the early 1980s. Mrs Thatcher was Prime Minister. The country was hopeful that the austere 1970s with blustering union leaders having beer and sandwiches at Downing Street were over. And finally, there seemed to be more cash in people's pockets. It was a few years before loads of money was the cry from the Barra boys of the stock exchange, but everyone was getting used to having more and spending more. Wine wasn't exactly flowing, but it was more common to see a bottle of Blue Nun or Liebfraumilch replacing the sherry on Sunday. Like all teenagers, I experimented. I didn't like beer, but I could hold down a fair amount of cheap cider. But I never thought that I could hold my booze, I always seemed to get drunker quicker and vomit sooner than all my peers. That's because you drank so much more than all of us, said one old school friend incredulously when I mentioned this at a reunion years later. Even then, I knew that I drank differently. I drank to blot out my anxiety. After Call Me Mark had disappeared from my life, I still had to endure all the whispers and pointing. I had almost celebrity status and was invited to all the parties only to discover that boys thought I would be easy and the girls wanted to hear all the lurid details. So I drank whatever alcohol I could get my hands on and inevitably arrived home drunk and crying. Alcohol and you don't mix, Dad said to me one morning after finding me covered in my own vomit passed out in the bathroom. About 20 years ago, I visited Italy with my then-boyfriend. The fuzzy glow on our relationship was already beginning to fade, and in the same way that tired, dispirited couples often plan babies or big weddings to paper over the cracks in the relationship, we had instead decided to move to a different country. I had my own dream that I had spent my lifetime chasing, which involved shady olive groves, living off goat's milk and lush vegetables from our own garden, and laughed to field afternoons as I canned tomatoes and practised my broken Italian with the elders of the village. I imagined that once we shed all the baggage of modern life, the debt, the endless consumption, the stress about the insignificant, we could reclaim the first heady days of being in love. My boyfriend made it very clear that he didn't, in, that he didn't intend to spend the rest of his life squeezing olives. The trip was a disappointment. After two weeks of bickering and sweating in the heat, wandering round half-ruined farm cottages with no proper sanitation and antiquated wiring, my dream was tarnished, our relationship was further strained, so we headed off to Rome for a couple of days. With the pressure off, we actually managed to relax in Rome. We were both far more comfortable with the relentless and personal busyness of city life, and we wandered round the chaotic mix of Roman ruins Hulk Couture and sun-drenched plazas. On the last day, we found a tiny restaurant with seating for about six at battered formica tables. It was empty, except for a tiny wizened senora who beckoned us in and then circled round us as if herding us into her establishment. We shrugged, obeyed, and then listened to an incomprehensible tirade of Italian from the senora before she disappeared for about 20 minutes behind a grimy plastic curtain. We waited in awkward silence as a dirt-encrusted air conditioner unit wheezed out lukewarm air 
and dripped on the floor, forming the only clean patch. Our apprehension about possible food poisoning evaporated like the steam and aroma that rose from two dishes of fresh pasta that emerged from behind the curtain, carried by the signora. To uneducated English eyes, it looked as though she had forgotten to top the pasta. We were so accustomed to piles of flavourless fat and protein that usually suffocated our spaghetti dinners, but as we twisted and sampled exquisite strands drenched in oil, the flavours danced on our taste buds. It made us smile. Signora poured two glasses of red wine from a glass jug. The wine warmed us. Hints of summer fruit, ripening in dappled sunshine, slowed down time in that shabby cafe, and we laughed together. For a short while, as I let the alcohol work its magic, I found myself believing that it was still possible to fix love, and my dreams were within my grasp. We spend so much rummaging around in our past, looking for trauma and tragedies, inherited traits and flawed genes, to somehow explain our bond to booze, that most of the time we overlook the big con. The human species has been getting wasted since one bright spark decided to drink the putrid juice of rotting fruit just for the fun of it to see what it tasted like, in the same way that kids try to lick steel telephone poles when it's freezing. And they chanced upon the intoxicating effects of ethanol. Imagine what an afternoon that must have been. Since then, alcohol, despite the millennia of hangovers and the tiny detail that the liquid is actually toxic to the human body, booze has been a cultural icon. We drink, we drink to celebrate births, birthdays, marriages, kids, divorce, new jobs, retirement and death. This is not the problem for me or many other drinkers. The real problem isn't the glass of fizz and sparkles for the new bride or the warm convivial glass of brandy on Christmas Eve. It isn't even the odd riotous teenage party where cheap cider and dusty bottles of ouzo stolen from the liquor cabinet inevitably end up as vomit and promises to never drink again. These rites of passage don't cause a cognitive dissonance of misery and compulsion that all dysfunctional drinkers experience as a love affair with booze moves into the acrimonious divorce stage. No, the big problem is that we depend on booze. It's not the celebratory toast or weekend social or even the punctuation at the end of the workday. It's a continuous use of booze as a prop in our lives. Stress at work? I need a drink. Argument with a sister-in-law? Pour another glass. General disappointment with your perceived lifelong underachievement? There's a wine for that. Dysfunctional drinkers, alcoholics, we all depend on booze to fix whatever it is in our lives that causes us pain or disappointment. I learned that at an early age. It wasn't the emotional trauma that I was going through. It wasn't that my life was any more pressured or stressed than anyone else. It was just that I found out that alcohol provided a relief, however temporary, from whatever ailed me. And the alcohol industry is onto it. Hell, they practically invented it. It wasn't so much that women underperformed, in the alcohol marketplace, as far as the industry was concerned, it was just collectively we didn't really have any reason to drink, beyond the social and celebratory. Or at least we hadn't figured that out yet. We needed to be informed and educated. 
Like snake oil salesmen, the alcohol industry hasn't been pushing the sexiness of booze, it's found a much more effective hook, the restorative power of wine. Much more troubling than the direct advertising of smooth Merlots and buttery Chardonnays sipped by impossibly beautiful and sophisticated women is the suggestive portrayal of the same sophisticated professionals uncorking a bottle at the first sign of a hurdle or a challenge. More dangerous than images of women drinking beer around campfires, chinking glasses of wine at the girls' night out, or sipping thoughtfully at the weekly book club, although these commercials are intensely annoying to anyone who has now figured out that life's fun uh, is not dependent on the beverage that you happen to be drinking. No, the more insidious images are now those that you see on social media now. The wine balance, the mum means, suggesting that parenting is not only easier with wine, but almost impossible without it. That drip, drip, drip of the narrative that every problem, every stressful event in your life is made better by booze. That's a big con. I fell for it, and that's how I was drinking. I rarely got drunk at social functions. I may have been boorish, rude, and repeated myself a lot, but I didn't fall over, start fights, or vomit. Well, not often. At the end of the evening, I would mostly stop on the way home and get another bottle of wine and drink it until I passed out, on my own. And that's a subtle shift in drinking patterns from my consumption compared to my mum's drinking, for example. I once asked her why she didn't drink when my brother and I were children. But I did drink, she said. As soon as you were old enough to be left with a babysitter, I went to all your dad's functions and we had people over for dinner all the time. No, I said, why didn't you drink every day when you came home from work? What on earth for? she asked, genuinely confused. And there's a difference. It's not so much that alcohol is any more normal now, although it is, or that women have been led to believe that drinking somehow is a badge of feminism, although many women do. It's not that we have more disposable income or more independence. All of these facts have influenced our drinking patterns, but the one single factor that makes one woman's fun another woman's downward ride on the alcohol elevator is why we drink. For my mum, drinking was a social event enjoyed with my dad at the end of the day or to enhance the ambience of a social gathering. For me, it was a solo event. Years after my first sip of whiskey, alone in the dark, and the trip to Rome, I was in another country, just after another failed relationship. Because I couldn't figure out the sense of it all, or put the fragments of my life into any recognisable order, I did what I knew best. I drank. My mum phoned me. Don't drink alone, she said. Mum, I answered. If I didn't drink on my own, I wouldn't drink at all. 